Hello and welcome. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the podcast that invites you to ask, what if, and challenges you to understand the why that drives design. Emerging technologies sometimes get a bad rap. Whether it's a military defense system gone rogue in war games, or AI getting a little too real in Ex Machina, there's a common thread among many of these technology-gone-bad pieces of fiction. The problem wasn't necessarily in the technology itself, but rather how it was designed, programmed, and trained. Now, these are just stories, but if we look hard enough, we see parallels in the real world. You may have read about algorithms that either disproportionately target people of color or completely ignore them. Or a set of resume review algorithms that would exclude women from its results because it was trained using the resumes of only the all-male development team. So how do we as designers of systems that leverage the power of artificial intelligence ensure that we're doing everything we can to avoid doing harm? That's what we're going to talk about today with my guest, Carol Smith. She's an expert in the field of ethics and AI. Here's our conversation. So my guest today is Carol Smith. Uh, Carol's a senior research scientist in human-machine interaction at Carnegie Mellon University's Software Engineering Institute, as well as an adjunct uh, instructor at CMU's HCII program. She's been working in user experience research for nearly 20 years and specifically focused on improving AI systems, which is our topic today, since 2015. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So there's so much more to your career than what I just described. You've had a really interesting career. I like kind of starting out our episodes, getting into how did you get to where you are today? So, you know, what's what's your backstory? Yeah. So um, I, I actually, my undergrad wasn't related at all. It was in uh, photography and journalism. We were just trying to enjoy learning about other people and, and things like that. And uh, I found that to not be such a good career and ended up looking for additional programs. I wanted to get like a master's degree in business, probably an MBA type thing. And I, I, it was difficult to find a program that was really a good match for me, given my work situations at the time. And I came across the human computer interaction program at DePaul University and uh, it just fit. It was a great match for uh, my interests in, in observing people and learning about them. Computers were such a pain at that point. This was in the late '90s, and they still are. But, <laughs> but but then they were they were much much more frustrating. And learning about people and, and psychology, and so I entered that program, and I've uh, been doing that ever since. So working a lot of different consulting jobs, working within organizations such as IBM and the Watson Group, and uh, more recently at Uber, uh, ATG, working on self-driving cars, and now at uh, at Carnegie Mellon University in the Software Engineering Institute. So it's it's been uh, a, a lot of different different steps to, to get here, but I'm, I'm really happy with the, the current work and it's really challenging and interesting. That's awesome. I've been following your career to a degree. We've met a fairly long time ago as far as uh, careers or technology go. So uh, it's been interesting to see you taking these different steps and it just keeps getting more interesting and more interesting as it goes. So uh, it's great having you here today. So Today's topic is artificial intelligence and more specifically the ethics side of artificial intelligence. So I think generally speaking, artificial intelligence, people understand it at a high level, like the general population, they kind of 
get it. And I'm probably over generalizing a little bit, but it's kind of this black box that you're either, you know, kind of on one side of it or the other side of it. It's either the solution or it's the problem. You trust it, you're afraid of it or something in between. Can we maybe start by just kind of demystifying AI to a degree for those who might, you know, know it, but not really know what it means? Sure, sure. So artificial intelligence is really, depending on who you talk to, I I use it as an umbrella term to describe a lot of different types of technologies. So these would include technologies that you've heard about in the news lately that do facial recognition, that that would be artificial intelligence technology that can help make self-driving vehicles work. That is usually artificial intelligence, although not always. Smart speakers frequently have artificial intelligence, although not necessarily. So it's a, a, a lot of different types of technology, but the main idea is that you're taking some awareness of a data set, usually. There, there's some training involved. So you're taking an initial set of information. You're showing that, if you will, to a computer. The computer is understanding that there are patterns in that data. So if it's text or if it's images, it's, it's looking for those patterns. It's trying to identify them and then taking that information and moving forward with it. That's a, also a description of machine learning for the most part. Machine learning is when you're when you're taking an existing set of data and applying it for, but but that can be broken down further into other types as well. I don't work directly in AI, but I work in the products that we create. Everything seems to touch in it, or at least the people we're working with is, are thinking about it. And one of the things I, I watched a couple of your more recent talks, uh, it's been a couple of years since, years since I've seen you in person uh, giving a talk, but this idea of one, AI is risky. It's difficult to get it right and risky in a general sense, but it's difficult to get it right. And, you know, bad things can happen when you're augmenting or replacing the complexities of human decision-making with technology. So how do you know when AI is the right thing to do? Yeah, so it's definitely not always. Uh, There there are a variety of things that have to be in place. You do have to have generally a a large amount of data. So if you're doing um, image recognition of grocery items, you have to have many, many, many versions of those images. So if it's a ketchup bottle, you need to have that ketchup bottle in a variety of different orientations. You would need it in a variety of different lighting conditions as that bottle of ketchup. Um, So if you expand that to all groceries, all of a sudden you're talking about potentially millions of images and and different backgrounds so that the machine vision, the AI system that you're using can consistently recognize. And so that's a large amount of data. So you need a place to store that data. So that's one set of problems. You also need somebody to curate it. You need to tag it or label it. There's a lot that just has to happen with that data. So that's a very big undertaking that frequently people can probably just hire another person instead of doing all that work. But if they can do all that work, that's great. Then you've got your data. And then the next step is actually doing the work to select the right algorithm and then take that algorithm and actually make it work in an AI system, train the system, get the system running, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so there's a lot of different steps. And this whole process can take minimally weeks and most likely months and potentially even a year or more, depending on the level of accuracy you need, depending on how complex the, the situation is. You know, if it's in the entire grocery store, that's a huge amount of data versus if it's just the aisle where the ketchup is, that, that at least narrows down the work that you're doing. Something like in shopping is still relatively low risk. I'm sure it's right. m- more and more 
complex as accuracy needs to be higher. One of the kind of recurring themes in, in you know, some of the research I was doing and some of the stuff that I've seen you talk about is just this, so much of it comes down to trust. And it's about really looking for those strategies to increase the accuracy and, and build trust within these systems. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, much like most of the systems we use, sometimes we have to use it for work or, or we need to use it for, for another reason. But generally, those systems either work or they don't. With artificial intelligence, you're adding a whole other layer where the system is making recommendations, potentially, maybe in a health situation, it's making a recommendation for treatment. I was just reading a story earlier today where there's a healthcare system where they're not even telling patients that they're using artificial intelligence in that clinic. So now you're breaching privacy, potentially, you're misleading people. There's lots of additional issues when you're using an artificially intelligent system because it is potentially going to impact the outcome. And in the healthcare situation and, and even in a uh, grocery selection situation, if it's wrong about the particular item, it's it minimally frustrating and in the healthcare situation could be lethal. And so there's a wide spectrum of, of how important is it that my trust be there, certainly within healthcare, within vehicle, autonomous vehicles and within you know other very urgent, very safety conscious or should be safety conscious areas. Uh, it's, it's much more important to have that trust there. Healthcare, I think, is is it's especially interesting to me because, you know, I do a lot of work in in healthcare, you know, product design, things like that. There are hoops to go through a lot of stuff with regulation. It's, it seems like to me or, or may, maybe it's, it's more of a question here. Is there are there still unknowns in the application of AI in these healthcare situations that they might not even know that they're exposing information that if in our systems the way they are right now, it's pretty clear and they'll call you on it. Uh, AI systems, is there somewhat of a mask or a veil to that? Yeah, I I do think that a lot of people, and I don't know if I'm going to answer the question, but a lot of people assume that because it's a machine, because it's a computer, because there's math involved, it's somehow less biased and more fair. And so in that sense, they're not as concerned. And so I I do think that that leads to a a feeling that, well, I, I set up an AI system, it's going to be okay. And, and then potentially not being as concerned as they might be, even if it was a human doing that work, which can be, again, a really significant mistake in some cases, because these systems do need to be monitored. They do need to be cared for, if you will, and, and, uh, and really taught and trained and continuously when there's new information, they, they definitely need even more attention. And so that, that's something I think people often don't realize. They, they assume, much like if you install software on your a regular computer, they assume if you install an AI system, you're good, you're done. And, and that's not the case. So it's almost they, as we were talking about trust before, you, you want people to trust the system, but you don't necessarily want them to trust it too much. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be some skepticism there as far as if the system really is doing the right thing and and being sure to check and monitor it just as you would um, a new employee, if you will, someone who is very knowledgeable maybe about that particular topic, but not as aware as you'd like them to be. And and just that continuous constant um, awareness of the system is really important. As you're, you know, going from, uh, your work at Watson, work at IBM to Uber, did any of that kind of inform, uh, it seems like you're, you're taking a very vested interest in this ethical side of AI. You're really kind of outspoken and, and really putting out so, some really good content around this and really good thought leadership on this. W- what kind of drove you in that direction? Yeah, it's funny. I, recently, I was looking for an old 
talk and uh, I actually had ethics in that talk from and it was about user experience and usability testing. And I, I think it's just something I've always been concerned about generally is, is making sure that as a practitioner in user experience, I was doing the right thing, that I was treating the participants as well as I could and, and making sure that that work was done correctly. And so now understanding the, the limitations of, of artificial intelligence and the ways also that its reach can be so much broader despite those limitations, has made me just much more concerned that ethics in general are just not talked about enough. There's not enough conversations happening um, within user experience, but also in the broader computer science world. It's starting to happen. There's more and more talk. There are more and more technical ethics coming out, and people are making it part of um, more conversations, but I still don't feel that it's part of everyday conversations. I feel that's really important that we think about the the, not necessarily just the what we want to happen, the, the benefits of these systems, that's important, but also talking about the risks and the potential unintended or unwanted consequences that can occur when we create these programs, when we, when we put them into a broader setting, when we apply the same algorithms across a broad set of humans, what, what are the implications there and how is that going to potentially affect their lives for better or worse, hopefully for better? It's really an, a, a growing movement. There's a lot of a lot of people working on this now, and it's it's definitely more of a proactive. Anytime I hear anything about ethics, I think it's a, of proactive. Be proactive. Know the guidelines. Know the rules going into it, uh, so you don't have to apologize later on down the road. Uh, which seems to be, at least from someone on the outside, just seems to be the status quo. You just hear, you know, if people are even, you know, have the. Uh, the guts to apologize, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's usually happening after the fact, I guess, even taking a step back, like what makes AI, what makes an artificial intelligence implementation or a design of, of AI ethical? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's hard to answer. It's the intentional work, really thinking through the, the system being, humble enough to, to know that you're probably going to make a mistake and that it's not going to be perfect, but actually planning for what you're going to do. We've seen a lot of these systems, as you said, people just, just launch them and then apologize later. And, and that's not helpful. That's not not the right way to do this. We should be in a situation where not only are you testing before you launch, but, but that you are aware that things might happen that you don't intend and that you've got a mitigation plan that you're really thinking through if something occurs this is what we're going to do. These are the steps we're going to take. This is how we're going to manage that. This is how we're going to protect people. Uh, really thinking through that way ahead of time so that it's not a situation where damage, significant damage is done, but rather that you have managed to prevent that very quickly. Whose responsibility is it? I mean, you think of like these are bigger, usually bigger teams, a lot of people, a lot of working pieces and parts. Whose responsibility is it? Yeah, and it's going to depend on the team, I think, who is responsible, but there does need to be someone responsible. I saw on Twitter earlier, somebody, they were talking about uh, who's responsible for design, and, and one answer was everyone, and then another answer was everyone can't be because then no one is. And um, I, I definitely agree with that argument. If, if everyone's responsible, no one is. So someone does need to have their name, so to speak, on that line. But at the same time, the team needs to take the responsibility of having the conversations and thinking through all those implications so that, that it's not just one person doing that effort because one person isn't going to be creative enough, imaginative enough to think of all the potential 
negative outcomes. And so you do need a team of people thinking through those implications, but then there does need to be, maybe it's the the product manager, maybe it's a project manager, the individual who's actually in charge of that product would be the person generally who's who's responsible for the ethics as well at the, at the high level. But really having a broad, diverse team is important to, to have those discussions. And then the interesting aspect is when these companies create a system and then it is sold to a customer, then who is responsible? Um, and that, that's where it gets tricky. And it's definitely legally not my, not my area of expertise, but, but there does need to be that clarity at the outset, who is responsible for this, who owns the data and data rights are a big thing as well. Like if, if it's my information, then, then I should own it. But then how does that flow into the, the rest of the system and, and how do you manage all of that? And that, that's a bigger, much bigger area of, of expertise than, than I'm <laughs> qualified to talk about. <laughs> well, was it something you said that like really kind of, at least it, 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 there's parallels in, you know, your design example it's like if everybody owns design then no one owns design it's true but you have usually have a team of designers who are skilled at design they might be taking direction from somebody they that person might be responsible for the outcome ultimately but everybody does need to be vested in and using their own personal skills or their own piece of the puzzle in moving that forward i'm sure there's myriad challenges in creating or in designing ethical AI systems. What are some of those the, the big challenges? What are the things that you like you absolutely have to get right? Yeah, um, I definitely that that data piece, like who owns it and how are you managing it. I think a big part of that is not taking more data than you need. So uh, if there is a situation where you're creating a form, not taking people's social security numbers unless it's absolutely necessary, like not engaging in that kind of behavior because taking on that data means you're now responsible for it and protecting people. And, and so reducing the potential implications, the potential negative um, outcomes is, is really important part. So that's one first step is just realizing the limitations of what we need to do to make this work. And I think another aspect is making sure that people are aware that they are communicating with an AI system. So there was a demo a couple of years ago now, I think by Google, where they had made a phone call, they ordered pizza, I think it was, with an AI system. And they didn't inform the the human that they were communicating with an AI system and the AI voice was such that it wasn't obvious. And I think that's that leads to a, a level of distrust and it's it's just disingenuous. It's it's not a way to be responsible with with these types of systems. And so I think that's another aspect is making sure that people know that they're dealing with a non-human uh, and so that, that there's some clarity there as, as far as how the system's going to behave and what the expectations can be for how it will behave. And that's the other piece is the expectations, making sure that people have an understanding of the the limits. The system only knows X, Y, and Z. It can't give you a recommendation about this other aspect, or it can only give you, uh, you know, this level of confidence in its decisions or in its its recommendations. And so the human needs to take over at this point. And those decisions that are really critical do need to be done by a human regardless and, and shouldn't be left to a machine. So in, in those cases, it's um, getting it to a certain point in that final decision making. Maybe it's right at the end or might be informing something earlier on. Yeah. Right, right. So one of the things uh, 
I, I actually just I read an article today just around AI and data and data quality in some of the policing systems, the systems that are being used to inform anything from, you know, uh, reducing recidivism or, you know, whether to let somebody out on on bail or not. But one of the things that keeps coming up and I keep reading an article and article and a lot of what you have written too is, is just around bias and bias in data. And the article I read today, you know, very much speaks about, you know, talking about like there's biased data input because of the quality and how it's collected. But then there was something that stuck out with something that that you wrote that was really intriguing to me because I never really thought about it because I always think of bias as a bad thing. But really, every piece of data is biased. Like it's coming from a human. Humans have their own personal experiences that go back to the day they were born. So there's this kind of love hate with this word bias but i when i was kind of thinking of challenges th- that seems to be one of those things is like what what does quality look like and what do you need to do to get quality yeah and i, and I do think having a diverse team is a big part of of raising the level of quality because the, a diverse team there, there was a harvard business review uh, article a couple of years ago about diverse teams think better and that's because they're more likely to already to some extent be on the, the defensive and to be aware of their own biases and so that's going to enable them to think together and and be more cautious about how they present their information and be more potentially skeptical of how other people are presenting their information and so they're as a team going to have all those different ways of thinking and and coming together is going to be it's going to build a stronger system in the end because they have those different different ideas and different thoughts but that that also brings us challenges and so that's where those technical ethics can really help people to come together on one shared set of ideas and and one shared set of agreements if you will about how they are going to create the system to behave and and what their expectations are and, and how they're going to to set it up for success it's actually a great segue because, again, as I was doing some research going into this, there was something that you worked on relatively recently that was really interesting to me. I, uh, it's the, your uh, human machine teaming framework. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that really stuck out with it, one, one it's, it's, a, it's a paper, it's a published paper that you developed, but it's just a very clearly written like combination of playbook guidelines and almost like a pledge of code of ethics when it comes to AI. I was hoping maybe you could kind of talk through that a little bit. Like as I was going through it, it was just very clear and concise and kind of a, a way to uh, approach things in, in this space. Yeah, it's um, so the idea is that you take a look really critically at your system and, and really understand what it is that you're trying to build and, and try to critique it using a, a checklist, which is a pretty basic idea. And the the goal there is really to have really what can be difficult conversations about the, the content and about the goals and to also use that exercise to become aware, more aware of work that needs to be done yet on the system. So in some cases, such as the example I was giving earlier with a system where it's not yet identifying itself, they may not be 
the team may not be aware of that yet. And through that that inspection process, through thinking through, they um, would come across that that particular idea and, and realize that oh wait, you know we, we don't have a way to identify this this uh, this chatbot that we're building. How do we make sure that people know that they're not talking to a human? Is is that the tone of the voice? Is that the way it pauses? Is that you know how is how is it going to communicate and work with humans? in a way that's responsible um, and ethical and, and really make sure that, that that system is working the way we want. And so that, that was the, the goal with that was to, to help organize people's thoughts around this work, to be able to not just take a, a set of technical ethics, which in some cases is very vague. So a lot of them will say things like do no harm or, or you know, keep people safe. But, but what does that really mean when it comes to implementing software or implementing artificial intelligence systems? And, and you can't really implement that kind of advice. You, you need to be able to inspect your work at, at a different level. So that that was the, the goal with that work was to, to be able to give people something that they could then take a set of technical ethics, ideally any set, and then start to work with that a little bit more closely and, and have a bit of a guide to, to help them get through that process. There's a couple of things within the framework that, that kind of stuck out to me that I one was the curiosity expert. Mm, yes. So what is the curiosity expert? Yeah, yeah, that's just a, a the term. Not not that we need more terms, but it, it was a way to kind of wrap up the types of work that user experience professionals do, the people who are really working on ethics specifically do, people with a human computer interaction background, any any kind of person who is really focused on understanding people and problems and thinking about the those implications. It, it's not a, a role, unfortunately, that is um, used as much in software or hasn't been as much as I think it should be. And with artificial intelligence systems, it becomes even more important to have those individuals be part of the team and be um, and you know, really encouraging the whole team to be curious to to try to get people to do more activities that are based in the methods of user experience and human computer interaction, and also to to encourage people to be imaginative and speculative with regard to to those implications of the system, um, because so many people working on these systems have more of a computer science background, a machine learning background, maybe even an electrical engineer background that they're not experts. About about humans, they're experts about machines and, and computing, and they, they need that that contrast. They need that uh, that diversity of thought on the team so that they're sure that they're really making the best system they can. It sounds like Groundhog's Day to a degree. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's it's where UX design kind of was born out of. Is is once we started advancing in the technology, we needed some people to we needed people who had these specific roles that would be there to keep things on track or focus efforts. That's interesting. You, you bring up the word speculative too, because in our design practice, I we use a lot of kind of speculative design techniques to, you know, like, look, what can we do today? And now let's just push it out five years and then we'll backtrack and kind of see what we can do incrementally. You bring up the, this idea of, I might be using the wrong term, but like this speculative, like almost like risk assessment. And a couple of the techniques that you use or that you talk about is like abusability testing and black mirror. Maybe if you could kind of talk about those, they're kind of 
cool, interesting ways to approach that problem. Yeah, yeah. And these, are, these aren't methods that I created, but they're methods that really work well for this type of work. Abusability testing is the idea of, of having uh, studies that really focus on the ways the system could be misused or abused. So thinking through what could someone do with this data? What else could someone do with the system? Could they hack it in such a way that would hurt people or would give them access to information or combine information that if they were combined would be would be very bad. So really thinking through those types of implications. And then uh, the Black Mirror episode creation is the idea that you take uh, an episode of the TV show Black Mirror and you actually take that idea. This show was a dystopian future where um, all the technology is just abusive in the, in the worst possible ways. And it's a great show. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. But the, the idea is to take your software, your, your AI system, and think about what would that Black Mirror episode of that be? What, what's just the most outrageous thing that could happen with the system? And by thinking through that and, and what you would do to protect people in those instances, how you would mitigate, how would you turn it off? Like just thinking through that forces you to think about those worst case scenarios. And it's really important um, because, you know, the chances are ideally that's not going to happen. But if you at least plan for some of those worst case scenarios, you're going to be ready for the other situations that come about. You can create an exhaustive list of things that could happen, but that doesn't seem to be the best use of anyone's time. I I think it's easier to do a, a, in one day, you can come up with some of those just absolutely worst case scenarios. And this is again, where that diverse team comes in handy, because if you have a team that has all had the same experiences, all went to the same university, all took the same classes, all, you know, have have been in the same position or the same companies, you're going to have a very narrow idea of the world and and of what kinds of things can happen to people. And uh, and that's where a diverse team is, is really important because people with different backgrounds, with different um, educational, social, everything, they're really going to be able to be much more imaginative and speculative about the bad things that can happen because they've had different experiences. I think that's really a general trend. I mean, it's lacking in design worlds. It's lacking in the software worlds. Um, we see the ramifications of it every day. It seems to me with systems like this, it's exponentially more critical that we have the voice of different a really diverse set of people because these systems serve all just like, like products. And, you know, I've heard every excuse in the book, why we don't need to, you know, recruit a diverse set of people to test a product or bring in designers that have a diverse background. In this case, it it impacts so many people's lives that, uh, and there's so many things that could go awry that are just completely unintended it just seems like it's all that more important. Kind of bringing everything together. There's ways to execute ethical AI. You know, there's, we can do this in so many situations. Yeah, you know, I think of working for a large tech company as somebody working on a single piece or part of the AI system or or the AI for that product. They might not feel empowered to be the ones pushing things forward. Even the startup that, you know, I, I've heard an, enough of this is that we're the little guys and we're, we need to kind of catch up. So maybe we'll bend the rules here. Maybe we'll do that. How do we empower and how do we motivate people to take that first step or, or become that champion and take it up the ladder? Yeah. And, and it can be really hard. I, I definitely think that there are organizations, there are 
situations where people aren't going to be able to implement these kinds of programs and, and really make ethical technology. And luckily, even with COVID, the job market is still pretty good in technology. So I would encourage people to, to you know, perhaps after things settle down a little bit, uh, start looking elsewhere. But I do think that making people aware of the news articles out there about how AI systems have gone awry, how people have purposefully or accidentally created systems that did harm can help raise awareness within organizations, making sure that people are aware of potential lawsuits. You know, different organizations are going to have different levers, but ideally just helping people to understand that, that you want to make something that's going to actually help people. You want to do the right thing. You want to be good. And that this is the way to, to do that is to find a set of technical ethics that work, adopt it, start testing you know, and trying these different things, do experiments to learn and, and really try to move forward in that way. And you'll get better and better. And part of that is also just realizing that, that it's not going to be perfect, but you're going to just keep trying to do the right thing. And, and people can tell the difference between an organization or a person who is trying to do the right thing and made a mistake versus an organization that really just doesn't care and, and isn't trying and is just trying to make a buck. And I think if people are honest and clear about that, they'll, they'll do fine. We're living in very interesting times right now. There's from the ramifications of the pandemic to a, a, you know, a cultural revolution. And I think that we're kind of in a place that we can potentially move things forward faster. There's more people listening right now, I think. So I, I hope that, you know, some of the people listening to this right now, are inspired and, and want to take some of this back. And I, I, I really urge anybody listening to look up Carol Smith, look up some of the stuff that she's been working on. Um, she shared, I think I went on SlideShare, you have like 50 SlideShares up there or something. <laughs> it's just like an enormous amount of work that you have out there. And there's just a, an amazing number of people, of very smart people working in this part of design, and I consider this is, is part of the design. We're creating things and those things need to work well. If we expect people to love the things that we make that aren't AI driven, why shouldn't we expect the things that we're creating that are AI driven to live up to those same standards? So Carol, I really thank you for joining us today. Uh, yeah. Any last words, any, any recommendations for anyone uh, that's thinking of getting into this? Yeah, I definitely. Uh, there's so much out there right now. Um, there are just some wonderful, wonderful people, as you mentioned, working on this. You know, a simple Google search will will give you lots of, of great recommendations for books, for articles online. I encourage you just to, to go out and learn more about learn more about AI. This area is just exploding. There's there's so much work to do, particularly with with regard to, to implementing ethics. And the the more people we have doing this work, the the better um, and safer we will all be. So please, <laughs> join, join, join me. <laughs> All right. Well, well, that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening to Design Everywhere. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we have a lot more episodes in the works. And if you can give us a rating or review, we'd love to hear what you think. You can follow the show on Twitter. Just search for Design Everywhere Podcast. That's at design underscore every. And you can also follow me, Jonathan Morgan, at Promo Rock. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and our audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jonathan Morgan, and this is Design Everywhere. Thanks for listening. 
Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chapotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.